From Wisconsin Sea Grant, I'm Hallie. And I'm Bonnie. And you're listening to The Water We Swim In, stories about the Great Lakes and the people working towards equity. Wisconsin Sea Grant is based at UW-Madison, which occupies the traditional land of the Ho-Chunk people. The stories on this podcast span the area we now know as Wisconsin, where the lands and waters are cared for by the 12 Native nations that call Wisconsin home. For 11-year-old Glenn Jackson Jr., this warm, late summer day was important. It was a day he had waited for all year. It was the first time his father, Glenn Sr., would take him out to gather manomen, the sacred food of the Ojibwe people. This was the day he would become a wild ricer. Walleye, muskelung, whitefish, pike, and bass are plentiful in the many rivers and lakes. We're right there. Not quite, because we don't live in Minnesota. See that little green part? Is that part of the big state of Minnesota. That's where Glenn and his family live. Isn't that cool? That's Liz Carter, who's reading to her daughter, Allison. They're reading The Sacred Harvest by Gordon Ragunti. I crossed paths with Liz at an online book club started by some of our colleagues here at Wisconsin Sea Grant and their partners at the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. The book club focuses on children's books, even though the attendees were all adults, because the book club is to get adults thinking about children's books for their kids or for their young students. Hi, my name is Liz Carter. Um, I live just outside of Denver, Colorado with my husband and our three-year-old daughter, um, I'm a softball coach and actually just able to add tech startup founder to my official title. Um, but as it relates to, to the book club, I am also a member of the Ottawa tribe of Oklahoma. So how I would normally have introduced myself is Bojo, Liz Carter, Indigenous, Nagig and Dondam, Denver, Colorado, and Donjaba. And what that means is, hello, my name is Liz Carter. I am a member of the Otter Clan, and I live in Denver, Colorado. And as of a year and a half ago, I would not have known what those words meant. I wouldn't have known to say them. I wouldn't have known anything about them for two reasons. Um, Number one is that I live in Colorado, and my tribe is in Oklahoma. It's very difficult to learn the language of a group of people when you're a thousand miles away from them. But the second reason is a little bit more intentional in that my great-great-grandmother, who at at some point was sent to residential school, um, had a very specific request that she did not want her children to learn anything about the language. She did not want them to know the language. She didn't really want them to know a lot of the cultural and, and other traditions that we have simply for preservation reasons. She wanted to keep them safe. So that was passed down to her daughter, who's my great-grandmother, who also did not teach her children any of the language um, or any of the cultural traditions. We, We did pass down the fact that we are Ottawa Indians. They always enrolled their children in the tribe and were very proud to do so. But we have two generations of a gap of the language and of our cultural traditions that we're trying to reclaim right now. The book club we both went to is called Madagindan, Start Reading. Madagindan is an Anishinaabe word. So in that word, uh, 
Agendan means to read something, something that's inanimate. Agendan. The ma, mod at the beginning means uh, we begin or we start, like ma ji to begin to do something. So ma mod agendan means that we begin to read. Oh, Michael, what's the Gijic indigenous cause? Makwa lindo dem. We Quimcom First Nations, Dibindagozian, Midash, Washburn, Wisconsin, Indayan Nongom. So I just introduced myself in, uh, in the Anishinaabe language. Uh, my name is Michael Price Wasagijik. I am Anishinaabe. I am from the Bear Clan. My family is from Wequemecon First Nations in, in Manitoulin Island, Ontario. Michael was an honored guest at one of the book club meetings. But it was Morgan Coleman who came up with a name for the book club during her internship with Wisconsin Sea Grant and the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, otherwise known as Glyphwick. I sort of figured that the thing that we wanted with this project was for kids to start reading about these topics uh, and get them interested young. Um, and so uh, I, I literally just typed that into the Ojibwe dictionary that I was using um, and saw that uh, there there was a word, <laughs> madagindan. Madagindan is meant to do two things. One, increase awareness of Ojibwe culture and two, to teach kids and educators about the Great Lakes and their important place in the watershed. I joined the Zoom and watched others trickle in. There was a few librarians, the book club organizers, a few people with a background in education, and some of the people were Ojibwe tribal members. Liz Carter joined as well. That first meeting, we were discussing the book Growing Up Ojibwe, a picture book created by Glyphwick. So I was on I was on my phone listening to it and my daughter was off playing something and um and we started by playing the song Beesh. And in the auto dialect, it's Nibish. So my daughter didn't quite pick up on that, but I think it was like the second line of the song, she sings Miigwech. And my daughter from across the room picked her head up and looked at me and goes, Miigwech? which means thank you. And to see her connect that song with that word that she knew was just like my heart sang. It was so incredible. And from that moment on, I was like, oh, this is, I'm supposed to be here. This is perfect. Um, and then later on, um, I believe Anne asked the question of a couple of the other indigenous members of the book club, of their experiences and to hear other people's experiences was just absolutely invaluable to hear people you know who kind of are on the same path but at a different point and different experiences i think it's just really important that we learn as much as we can from one another and and then i decided that i was going to share my story about um you know about how much how much trauma that we've experienced just in my family line and in my tribe and um and I, I, maybe it was imposter syndrome or something, but I never really thought that people would care. <laughs> and, and to have everybody on that call, not only listen to me and pay attention to what I was saying, but the fact that it resonated with some of them was just something that I never expected. And, you know, it's like, here, it's my story. It's not like, why would anybody else care about it? And 
Um, and I, somebody else on the call said that she hoped that everybody could send me um, some healing vibes just to just to start to heal some of that trauma. And it just, it made me feel so seen and so empowered and so loved and cared for. And um, it was an absolutely incredible experience. So I remember when Liz shared her story, um, this moment, and it was really powerful for me. And I know all the others in the group as well. I don't think anyone who attended Madagindan anticipated the people that we'd meet the stories that we'd hear. On this episode, we explore Ojibwe children's literature, the Anishinaabe language, and indigenous reconnection to what's been taken through colonization. The Ojibwe migration took many hundreds of years. Finally, in the mid 1500s, the Ojibwe found their special place what is now northern Minnesota and Wisconsin, where our people lived, Allison, was in northern Michigan. Me? Mm-hmm. Our people are called the Adawe. Uh, the Ottawa tribe of Oklahoma. The Ojibwe language and the Odawa language are very similar. They both fall under the umbrella of the Anishinaabe language. When we met Liz, she told us more about the history of her tribe, the Ottawa tribe of Oklahoma. We've been through a lot, and not that any other tribe hasn't. We were removed from the Ohio Great Lakes region, um, I believe it was 1837 was when we were removed from that area down to what is now Ottawa, Kansas. Um, And what I have heard is that we lost nearly half of our tribal members once we moved down to Kansas because the environment was different. So we went from, I think it was, I think it was over 600 people down to like 300 people in, in a pretty short span after we moved to, to Kansas. Then they, the Baptist church was going to build a school in Ottawa, Kansas. And so what I have learned is that it that school was was intended to be a residential school for my tribe but we were moved a second time down to Oklahoma so we we missed the residential school piece of things and we were able to turn that school into what is now Otto University where they have done a really good job of celebrating our tribe and tribal members can can get an education from Ottawa University for free and it just is it's a way to really add to the tribe instead of what it was probably intended to do is take away from the tribe as much as possible so we made that move in um, the late 1860s down to Oklahoma and that move was like 180 people who came down to Oklahoma Um, Most of them were children, most of them were orphaned children, and it it was a move that was intended to make the tribe stronger, because we actually bought land down in Oklahoma, thinking that if we owned the land, that they couldn't move us again. And it has worked out in our favor in the fact that you know, the, the American government okayed that agreement, okayed the, the land sale, and, and we've still been able to be there. 
Um, but we went from about 180 people that were moved down to Miami, Oklahoma, um, and now we're, I think we're at like 3,000 to 4,000 members of the tribe. Liz lives in Colorado. Actually, she's a fifth generation Colorado native on her mom's side. Her dad, also an Ottawa tribe member, grew up in Oklahoma and moved to Colorado in the early 80s. She mentioned that living in Colorado is a barrier to connecting with her Ottawa heritage since the tribal nation is in Oklahoma. That is until COVID happened. So it was February of 2021. Um, we were, you know, in the, in the depths of COVID lockdown. Um, and I happened to see on my tribe's Facebook page that they were going to start doing online language classes. Um, I guess before COVID, they would do a weekly class in the tribal building. Um, but with COVID and, and the inability to gather, they decided to take those classes online, which means uh, me sitting in you know, Colorado, I'm actually able to start taking, taking online lessons. And the first lesson that we, that we had was actually about emotion. And I remember my instructor using the word for uncertain and the way the way that she described the word for uncertain how it would kind of translate in, into English is that I am unable to understand what my ancestors are telling me so far so my ancestors are trying to tell me something but I can't quite understand what it is that's the word for uncertain and when she explained that I was absolutely hooked like it was just an eye-opening experience for me of how complicated these words are and how how much meaning and beauty and action they they really have so i have been taking language classes since february of 2021 um my sunday i i build my time on sundays around these language classes so that i'm able to be there because it's something that is really really important to me and I, again, I just want to have, um, I just want to do whatever I can to, to bring back the language and bring back some of those cultural aspects into my life and into my daughter's life. It is an absolutely incredible experience because this language is so beautiful and it is so emotional and it is really, really difficult. So I, when I grew up, um, I obviously grew up speaking English, but I also took French for about nine years. And so my brain has learned languages where there's a noun, there's a verb, adjectives, adverbs, whatever it might be, but it's, it's pretty much the same formula. This language takes that formula and completely throws it on its head for, for the better, I think. English is about 70% nouns. Whereas Anishinaabemowin, which is the official word for this language, means the, the language of the original people. Anishinaabemowin is 70 to 80% verbs. So every noun that we have in English, it's actually a verb in Anishinaabemowin, which means it has to be conjugated, which means that it has to be modified. All of these things that just make the language as an English speaker that much more difficult. There is a beautiful book um, called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer that talks about this, how hard it is to learn all of these nouns. The part of the her story that really resonated with me was she too was reading the dictionary and saw, saw the word for bay. It's like a body of water, a bay. 
but it wasn't a noun. It was the verb to be a bay. And how how angry she got at this because there's no way that a bay is a verb. There's no way. It is a thing. I can see it. I can touch it. It is a noun. But then she started realizing that it's the wa- the action of the water that makes it a bay. It's the action of the elements that turn it into this thing. And so to be a bay is actually far more accurate than the noun, a bay. And that is something that I have really tried to, to pay attention to as I'm learning this language because it is so, so difficult. So when it comes to teaching all of that to a three-year-old, it makes it that much more difficult. Like I wake her, I wake her up every morning and I walk into her door and I say, Gushkozen, because that means you wake up. It's time you wake up. It's time for you to wake up. Um, but if I was waking us up, I would say Gushkozen da. So when she says it, she tends to use the wrong tense because she knows Gushkozen because I say things to her. So I try to work in different experiences where we're talking about multiple people or where I'm talking about a group of people outside of us and how, how the different words are used. But I, I believe that, I believe that my ancestors are just absolutely smiling anytime they hear us say any word. So whenever we go out for a walk, we we say hi to the animals in our neighborhood. So if we see an ajitimo, or if we see a squirrel, we'll say, Bojo ajitimo, Anishna Ajiyayan, and just hi, hi squirrel, how are you? And just trying to trying to bring back the language in whatever way that we can. Um, and at this point, when it comes to my knowledge of it, I still am very much as at a three-year-old level of of the of the language knowledge. So um so from a linguistic perspective, it's we're kind of on the same level. So it's really nice to be able to to kind of have a, a partner in crime, you might say, um, of learning this language. My dad, who is also an Ottawa Indian, um, he, I dragged him into language classes. I can't even remember how long ago. It was sometime last year. And so he has, he has learned some of the language and it's been incredible for him to to reconnect as well he just i think he just wants to be around the language and he has felt a little bit more regret than i have because he knew his grandmother who also went to i think she also had to go to residential school as well the details are a little bit fuzzy because they didn't really want anybody to know about it but he wishes that he could have had more conversations with her about how she grew up and what it was like and you know what it was like living on on the the reservation as a young child and um and what she remembers but we've both just kind of mourned this this gap in our in our history that we're never really going to know a lot of these a lot of these answers and and now it's our job to kind of create our own answers and, and come up with with a new with a new story I think it's really, like, you can see her dedication to wanting to get closer to her culture and, like, go back to her roots and learn her language. 
but it's also kind of bittersweet because it's like she shouldn't have to do that like it really sucks that her entire culture and like way of life was like ripped away from them and I like I could not imagine I couldn't imagine myself like if my culture was taken away I could not imagine learning Somali like even at this age just because it's such a complicated language like there's so many like sometimes when I'm translating in English it just I'm like I gotta think about this because you have to like figure out ways to say and I think that's what she was also talking about when she was speaking earlier but yeah it's 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 really it's really great to see her dedication like her passion though it's really inspiring yeah I was gonna ask you about like because Somali is your first language so um you don't have to think probably about like how it's different with the verbs and noun structure and everything. It just comes natural, but does it have a pretty different like structure than English, do you think? Yeah, completely. And that's why it's been really hard for my mom to like, or my parents both, but especially my mom to learn English. Like she still struggles so much with learning English because we have such a completely different structure. Like for example, in Somali, everything has a gender. So it's like that desk, like miska that's a that's a boy you know and it's like the knife is a girl and like all these and it's it's that kind of stuff and then also the order in which we th- say things like if you really directly translated it it would be backwards in english so i don't know there's just a lot in terms of translation that is different but also like the writing aspect of it the reading aspect of it it's completely different alphabets and all that so So I found out about the book club through my tribe's Facebook page. Our, my language instructor has, um, you know, she's the second chief in the tribe. And so she plays a very big role in terms of communication with everybody. And um, I just happened to see that she posted about this book club. Um, and I asked her about it to see if it would be appropriate because, you know, my daughter is three and and my language instructor said, yes, just, just do it. Like, just do it. So I, I signed up and, um, I think the first, the first meeting I had signed up probably a couple weeks before and received a notification that everything was full. <laughs> so it's like, oh man, maybe I can, maybe we can join the second session. And then about two days before the first meeting, I, um, I got an email saying that we were in and I was like, Oh my God, but we haven't read the book. I don't know what's going on. So, um, so I'm trying to get as many resources as I could. Um, and it was the book growing up Ojibwe, which unfortunately is not at my local library, but there was a game that had been built. Um, and I just tried to learn as much as I possibly could, because I really wanted to be as respectful as I could with, first of all, everybody's time, but second of all, with these resources that are very, very important to me. But then to be able to, to be able to see everybody who just wanted to learn more about, about this way of life was just really, just really welcoming. It just felt like a warm hug. So as Liz said, the focus of that first book club meeting was the book Growing Up Ojibwe by Glyphwick, and it's illustrated by Joshua Whitebird. Morgan Coleman was the person who chose that book for Madagindan. She developed the book club list during her internship. Yeah, so uh, it was a lot of research. First, combing through lists of uh, books by Ojibwe authors about Ojibwe experience and also, you know, set in the Great Lakes region that uh, have something thematically to do with the Great Lakes. And so then I had to 
whittle that down to uh, books for children. And then I had to access these books, you know, via ebook, via going to the library uh, and, and do a lot of reading. Morgan ended up with four featured books, which we've linked to in our show notes. Each meeting featured an honored Ojibwe guest that had some connection to the story of the book. The first guest was Hannah Arbuckle. Hi, I'm Hannah Arbuckle. Um, I'm the outreach coordinator for the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, and I'm a member of the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. I'm not going to lie, I think I was a little bit nervous when I agreed to, I guess, speak about growing up Ojibwe because it's really, it's a part of my identity, but I didn't really, I didn't grow up on the reservation. I grew up off the reservation, but I've always been tied very deeply to my community in Bad River, where um, I'm from. And I feel like being able to, I guess, share that with others who felt the same was was really almost healing in a way, because I think a lot of other um, people who might identify as growing up Ojibwe, I think, struggle in the same way that, you know, you have these two, you have these two identities, you have this native identity where you're trying to, you know, fit into the society, the mainstream society we live in today, while still holding on to those really important cultural things. And being able to share that with everybody was a really cool experience for me. Each one of the special guests that came on brought something new that I had never really thought about, but it it felt it felt like it was inside of me, um, which is a feeling that I experience all the time now when I ask somebody a question about anything involving our culture and they give me the answer and I get this feeling in my head that's not, oh, wow, that's really cool to learn. I get this feeling that, oh, I already knew that. It's just reconnecting with something in, in the back of my brain or in my in my gut or whatever it might be. I think to hear as many stories as we possibly can is so important. Whether it's you know somebody who grew up on a reservation, immersed in that culture, or somebody who wasn't, I think that each story is incredibly valid. And that's that's the takeaway that I had from each book that we read, from each session that we had was just bringing a sense of validity to these stories and bringing breathing life into these stories that maybe otherwise would have gone unnoticed. One of the coolest experiences for me when it came to reading the books with my daughter was, you know, she's she's three. We read shorter books. We read, you know, she loves the board books. She loves something that's shorter that she can really digest. But when it came to reading the second book, The Sacred Harvest, it was a little bit longer, more words on each page, very different than what we normally read. So we would read a couple of pages and then we would put it away and then she would want to come back to it. And to see her start to gravitate back to that story and remember where we were and remember who the people in the pictures were. She remembered Glenn and she remembered what they were doing. It was really encouraging for me on a developmental level to think of how she is connecting the dots and making that next leap logically and how important books are in that, in in you know the overall education of a child. We, I try to, I try to read as many books as I possibly can to her. Like I, I think our minimum is like ten to twelve books a day, 
um, because I really, I really just want her to be exposed to as much as possible. And she's a total COVID baby. So, you know, she, her biggest experiences in life have been through books. Michael Wajagizik Price was one of the honored guests as well. I think the, the perspective of Anishinaabe or Ojibwe stories, we look at the world in, in a different perspective. We look at the world that our, that the animals are considered to be our relatives, that our earth is considered to be the mother of all living things. And that we begin to learn these, these relationships and these connections through our stories that, 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 that we wouldn't learn anywhere else. And the unique thing about it is it's, this is uniquely Anishinaabe. So if you go listen to stories like in Navajo country or, or, or Blackfeet country or in, in different indigenous people's worlds, I mean, their stories are all uniquely uh, coming from their philosophy and their worldview. But our stories talk about our relationship and our kinship with the natural world in, in, in in a lot of ways, I think that's what the world has been missing. I don't see that we have that that spiritual connection to the world. And and if you go back and read the works of philosophers like Rene Descartes and Sir Francis Bacon, they worked very hard to separate human beings from the natural world and to declare that all of nature is is mechanistic and without spirit and without conscience. So therefore, we can just manipulate nature to our needs. And that is such a, that, that philosophy, I think, has been problematic for our society for hundreds of years. The Anishinaabe stories talk about us being on this equal footing with all of nature and with all living things. And that we need to nurture things like respect and reciprocity and relationship. Uh, with the world that we live in. So that's one of the things that I get from uh, the stories that, that I, I read and I hear. After the break, more from book club guest, Michael Washigizig Price, about the stories that made him who he is today. Okay, so one of the books that um, was on the list for the book club was called The Birchbark House by Louise Erdrich. And I didn't get to read it for the book club, but I did pick it up afterwards. It's like, it's a chapter book. So it's kind of at the middle school level, or maybe it's about a 10-year-old Ojibwe girl who grows up on Moningwanakanig, which is Madeline Island in Lake Superior. Um, but it was kind of funny. So I haven't read a book about, like for 10 year olds, like, you know, since I was 10 probably. So I was like, okay, you know, I'll just read it during my lunch break. Um, but then I kept reading it and like, I just found myself like thinking back to the book, like when I wasn't reading it, just while I was like walking around or doing, doing other stuff. Um, and it's just this really simple kind of like feel good story about this family, this Ojibwe family on Madeline Island. I mean, it's it's not all feel good. There are some 
trials and tribulations, but I started telling my best friend about it. And then I lent her the book and she also like just ripped through it. Like (laughs) we're just like reading this middle school book. Um, And there's actually like seven to 10 books in the series. And um, we're both, we both read uh, the first two and are on on onto the third one. Um, Wait, now I kind of want to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you should. Yeah. So Michael Washagizik Price was the honored guest when we discussed the Birchbark House. And we were able to speak with Michael Washagizik at a separate time about Anishinaabe stories, like the ones featured in the book club books. Because within the language is also the philosophy and, and, and how we relate and connect to the natural world. So uh, we learn a lot about our connection to the earth just by studying the words in our language, the Anishinaabe language. Michael is a teacher. He's been a teacher for a long time. He's taught at tribal colleges, then he got his certificate to teach the Ojibwe language. Now he works at the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission as the traditional ecological knowledge specialist. Of course, that's part of my job is helping to integrate language and culture into the work that we do. I also teach language to the staff so that they have more of an appreciation of of the language. Oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. And and by teaching and preparing these lessons, it actually uh, improves my own, my skills as well. It gets the language more firmly rooted into my into my mind and my spirit. I also asked Michael how he became interested in teaching the Anishinaabe language. I guess it goes all the way back uh, to, to my relationship with my mother. She, uh, she attended nine years of residential school when she was a young woman from, from 1938 to 1947. She was there for nine years. And in that time, you know, the, the schools were designed to, to take away the language and the culture and the identity from these native children. And my mom lost her ability to speak her language and she um, had no more connection with with her her community at home. When I became an adult, after I learned that, I I had a a deep commitment and I guess I would say a mission maybe to, to help to restore the language that those schools had destroyed and also to bring back this this worldview and this philosophy that Anishinaabe people had about the world. Um, Our ecology, our cosmology, uh, our traditions. I wanted to be a part of that movement to to revitalize uh, our our culture. I didn't, I wasn't exposed to any of the language or the culture when I was a kid. In fact, I, I really didn't even know the word Anishinaabe or Ojibwe or Odawa or even Chippewa. I grew up in uh, southeastern Oklahoma among uh, Choctaw, Chickasaw and Cherokee uh, people. And yeah, I I was exposed to other tribes, but I learned, I didn't learn anything about my language and culture until I was an adult. Michael's family comes from the Wakwemakong Nation on the unceded land of Manitoulin Island in Ontario, Canada. That island is where his mother is from. Well, she grew up there until she was nine years old. And that's when she went into the residential school. When she got out of residential school, then she moved on to Sault Ste. Marie. And uh, eventually she met and married my dad there. And 
and then they moved on to Oklahoma. I mean, pretty much into my 30s. I began to talk with my mom and she would tell me stories about her childhood. And, and then she told me about these, these schools that she went to. And at the time, I really didn't understand um, the mission of these schools and, and what they were and, and why they existed. But once I did learn, I started researching more and more and more about, you know, our, our family and our people. And um, I remember that my mother had a, a family tree done by a professional. And when they created that family tree, the, the names went all the way back to the late 1700s, back before Native people started having Christian names. And I was absolutely blown away to learn more and more about my who I was and my roots because I'd never learned that as a child or as a teenager or not even as a young person. So yeah, I, uh, that started my life on a whole new different journey. I remember when me and my mother went back to uh, Weequimacong uh, to visit family. And I heard a story that was told there. The story was about a village of people that lived on an island. And while they were on the island, the people started, the people were growing, were growing sick. And also on the island too, the, the, the brush had overgrown in the forest and the whole island had become unhealthy. And so the medicine person, the old man that, that, um, that lived in that village, uh, a vision came to him that in order to chase off the bad spirits from this island, we needed to burn the island. And so that's what they did. They sent the young men out. They sent the families off to relocate to another island. And the young men went out and set fires all across the island and totally burnt the island off. And they stayed at this other location for the whole winter. Well, the next spring, all of a sudden with all the, the, the char and all the, the burnt everything, all of a sudden green grass started coming up uh, on the island. And as a result of all the green, lush green bushes and shrubs and grasses, now the deer and the rabbits started coming back to the island. And then soon the berries came back. And eventually the Anishinaabe people in this village returned back to the island. And now the island, island was healthy again. And so now the Nishabi people lived well and fire became an integral part of the culture of keeping the forest healthy. So when I heard that story, fire chasing off the bad spirits, you know, this is probably in 1989. This is when Yellowstone had, they had the big fire in Yellowstone and they talked about forest regeneration by wildfire. And I thought these two are the very same thing. Scientists are talking about forest regeneration and the Anishinaabe people are talking about chasing the bad spirits off and bringing health back to the forest. Those two were the exact same thing. And that really sparked, a, uh, it really sparked in my mind that, wow, th th there's something here that, that these stories do contain knowledge and wisdom. And, and, and that's when I began to read and, and to look at, you know, you know, different stories and, and start listening to uh, storytellers. And, but I was just a young man, I was in college. 
I thought I knew quite a bit being a being an undergrad. But I guess I could say that was my first exposure to indigenous knowledge. So it didn't come out of the, the Western academies. It, it came uh, from uh, from our community. You went on to study forestry. Did that? Is there a connection there? I, there had to have been. Yeah, you know, I I've been drawn to the to the trees, to the forests, uh, my whole life. So yeah, it's uh, part of my path. I started late in life. I started learning the language probably when I was 37, 38. And I learned from a few people in the Leech Lake, Red Lake area. And I started learning how to speak Ojibwe, which is a little bit different dialect from what my family speaks back at Manitoulin Island. But since I was living in Minnesota, I said, well, I'm going to learn the dialect here. And so I learned how to speak, uh, or I learned the language uh, over the course of about, I don't know, 15 years. I was just kind of dabbling in the language. And I finally realized that if I, if, if I ever want to have any type of uh, comprehension or fluency, I need to really get serious about it. So in 2019, I enrolled in uh, intermediate and advanced Ojibwe language courses at Bemidji State University, and I learned from uh, Anton Troyer. And, uh, and then I really got a, a grip on the language, and, uh, and then I got a certificate in teaching there. Yeah, so this has actually been my first teaching gig here at the, in the languages here at Glyphwick. But, uh, you know, again, like I said earlier in my introduction, I, I really reflect back on, on my mother, who's already passed on now. Um, but I think about, you know, me going back and reclaiming the language for uh, my family and for my son. And yeah, I, I, I would love it if she would have been around to, uh, to, to see me get that. But she probably knows somewhere, somehow. So when we talked to Liz, she had just come back from a big road trip. Remember how she was taking language classes with her dad? Well, at the same time, he was also studying for his bachelor's degree. Well, my dad, who's 73 years old, just finally earned his bachelor's degree. He made a promise to me back in, I think it was 2011. I was graduating from grad school. And he made a promise to me that he would get his undergraduate and so his motto was get your degree when you're 73. So last week we went to um, we went to Ottawa, Kansas to see him graduate and spent a couple of days there and explored, explored the area. But we were able to see a couple of the grave sites of my family. And it was it was a very surreal experience to see these people who I've tried to learn as much about as I possibly can but also the feeling of sadness that was there. Um, the, the feeling of just, it was, it, you could just feel it in the air that they didn't want to be in this area. They didn't want to be in this territory. And I really felt that throughout every ounce of my soul. Um, and, and it made it a very, very strange trip to, to be so excited to learn so much about these people and to be able to reconnect and be able to see, you know, their final resting place, but to know how terrible it was for them and how, how much sadness in just enveloped their life once they moved to Kansas. 
And then after we spent a couple of days in, in Ottawa, Kansas, we went down to Miami, Oklahoma, where our tribe currently is. And to be able to, to be able to meet my language instructor face-to-face, some of the people who I've done language classes with, to be able to see some of our tribal artifacts and be able to, to just be where, where my tribe is, was so just good for my soul. It was just, it was great to finally be able to meet these people as great as it is to connect online. There's, there's nothing like connecting face to face. So to be able to see that, to be able to see the things that we have built, to be able to see the ways that they are improving our tribe and working so hard to make sure that we are as strong as we can be was absolutely fantastic. Um, but then again, there was still this feeling of just like, you know, we're doing the best that we can. We're doing the best with what we've been given. And, and they are amazing at, at that. They are doing so much with what they've been given. Um, but I don't feel like I will have a, a complete sense of, of who I really am as an Ottawa Indian until I am able to go back up to the Great Lakes region and be able to, you know, be on the lands where, where my ancestors really were. So hopefully next summer we can, we can make that journey. Well, if you look back on, on the, the history, Native peoples did not have a positive relationship with our government. All the way up until 1978, uh, it was basically illegal for Native people to perform their, their ceremonies. So now that, that in 1978, they passed the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. That's one thing. On another hand, too, uh, a lot of these stories and this knowledge was being expropriated, written in books and sold, and the Native people got no recognition and nothing in return. So taking these two things together, a lot of Native people learned to be very tight-lipped about their knowledge, you know, the ceremonies, the stories, uh, the language. I grew up in that time frame when people have people were tight-lipped about you know these teachings i was lucky enough to have a, a, a mentor and a teacher that had a different approach to knowledge he said if we don't if we don't start talking about these things among ourselves we're going to lose this knowledge and of course that that silence from our elders come from uh, colonization came from boarding schools uh, in the boarding schools, they made this, they made the kids ashamed of who they were and ashamed of their knowledge. You know, so many of us students of those boarding school survivors, we've 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 had to deal with. You know, do we share this knowledge or do we not? You know, and as a teacher, that's that's been my philosophy: is to be more open. So today we've already talked about colonization, boarding schools, and the experience of our indigenous guests who are working to reconnect to their heritage. And what brought us here? Reading children's books. I think it's really important to promote Native authors. It's real important, I think, to to promote the, the Native authors who actually grew up in the communities and now they're writing books. And, and they offer a, a genuine uh, perspective of, of Native American life and worldview. So our co-workers have led four Madigan Den meetings so far and are planning to do more in the future. I caught up with them to see what stuck with them from the book club experience. Here's Anne Moser. 
As a librarian with Wisconsin Sea Grant, I do a lot of programming with kids. I take a Great Lakes topic and I sing and I make crafts and we dance and we tell stories. And the power of stories is, is it can make such an impact on children. But these stories for children are so important as they grow up and they are becoming who they are, they're finding their identity, who are they, who are their friends, who are their relatives. This, this process of finding their identity is so strong at, at this age group that our book club is targeted for. And books must reflect all of the faces that we find in society now. And it's also understanding your identity and also appreciating others. So creating empathy for others. So a child's growing up and, you know, they're hearing the stories of the Ojibwe people. They're hearing their full history of the country, all of things that have happened to our native populations, they begin to have empathy from a young age. And this is very important when we're trying to create community in our country and have, you know, all of us listening and hearing and, and being respectful with each other. It really starts at a very young age. So having these books that are reflective of our society are just really, really important. The Water We Swim In is produced by Bonnie Willison and Hallie Jama. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant at seagrant.wisc.edu. You can find the Wisconsin Water Resources Institute at wri.wisc.edu. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.